Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 28, Meet My Associates. First up, I'm really happy to have Manning back, sponsoring the show for this episode. They're here, again, with a discount on some video content they've put together. And even better, because that video content is by Carol Nichols or Golding and Jake Golding. We actually talked about this content just a few episodes back. I've been saying for several years now that we need more video content in the Rust space. It's a huge way that a lot of people learn. Manning's Rust in Motion is one of the first major video courses for Rust, at least that I know of. And you can get 40% off on it at deals.manning.com slash new hyphen Rustation. There's a link in the show notes. Don't worry if you didn't catch that. And that link actually gives you 40% off of everything at Manning, including their Rust book, Rust in Action, which is currently an early access preview. Thank you so much to Manning for sponsoring the show and for building some great video content about Rust with Carol and Jake. Now, let's jump in. Today, I'm going to talk about associated items. You can think of this episode as being basically Traits Deep Dive Part 4, because associated items are one of the last pieces of the story around Rust's trait system that we haven't covered yet. We've actually talked a lot already about a number of things which go under the label of associated items, though, because associated items actually covers basically all trait items. However, there are some nuances to that summary that I just gave, which are worth digging into, and there are some important kinds of associated items which we haven't talked about at all yet on the show. Per the Rust reference, associated items are the items declared in traits or defined in implementations. They are called this because they are defined on an associated type, the type in the implementation. They are subsets of the kinds of items you can declare in a module. Specifically, there are associated functions, including methods, associated types, and associated constants. Again, that from the reference. We should notice here that associated items are a limited set of all kinds of items in Rust. You cannot define just anything on a trait. Most notably, you cannot in general define type members on a trait. That is, you could define a trait nameable, and that could have a method on it like get name, which takes self by reference and returns a string. But you cannot include a property on the trait like name of type string. That distinction is quite important, and it's one of the ways Rust's trait system is very unlike most interface types in other languages. It's possible to imagine a system where Rust's traits did define data members, but that would end up undercutting one of the most important elements of Rust's core design, the sharp and essential distinction between data and behavior. Traits are behavior. That's why you implement a trait for a data type with an impl block, just the same way you implement the behavior of the data type itself with an impl block. With that little clarifying note out of the way, we can look now at the kinds of things we can define on traits, associated functions, constants, and types. We've talked about functions and methods before, back in episode 23, Traits Deep Dive Part 1. There are just two more things I want to highlight in the context of this episode. First, trait functions and methods are indeed a kind of associated item. They're a type which is associated with the thing implementing the trait, just as simple as that. Secondly, though, and more importantly, when I talked about these back in episode 23 and 24, I skipped over the difference between associated functions and associated methods. 
Both of them are functions which are defined on a trait. The difference is whether the function takes self as a parameter in some way. If the function does take self as a parameter, whether it takes it by reference, whether it moves it, or whether it even takes it in a way like taking a box around the type of self, regardless of how it takes self, it's a trait method. And if it does not take self in any way, it's just a trait function. That is, it's an associated method or an associated function, depending on whether or not it takes self. Remember that the general syntax for calling a function which is attached to a type, whether that type is a struct, an enum, or a trait, is simply the type, followed by a pair of colons, followed by the name of the function, with any arguments passed in after that. And methods are just special cases of functions, which happen to take self as their first parameter. That's true of any kind of type. And these rules work out exactly the same way for associated functions, which are, again, functions defined on traits, as they do on concrete types, structs or enums. So notice that methods, which is the piece of this that I focused on in my previous discussion of traits, are just a special case of associated functions. They're associated functions which take self as their first parameter, like I just said. And this is true of functions versus methods in general in Rust. You can impl a function which doesn't take self on any type. For functions which are not methods and which are located on a type, you have to call them with that long-form syntax I just described. The name of the type, a pair of colons, and then the arguments. So the type, colon, colon, some underscore function, open parens, args, and more args separated by commas and close parens. Since trait methods are just a special case of associated functions, you can call them the same way. But as with all methods in Rust, if you have a trait method, you can also call that like some instance dot some method, open parens, args, close parens. That little addition was basically all we needed to cover for associated functions. I already covered most of these details back in that first deep dive episode about traits. So if you need a refresher, go back and listen more to that. Next up are associated consts. As I noted a minute ago, you cannot generally define members on a trait. There is one kind of member you can define on a trait, though, constants. A trait cannot have any dynamic members, but constants it can have. Those of you who listened to my news episodes for Rust 1.31 and the 2018 edition may recall that one of the features stabilized with 1.31 were const function types, useful for compile time programming. Well, associated constants, which were defined with the rest of the associated item system all the way back in RFC 195, and which were stabilized back in Rust 1.20, are another of the tools that we have available for that kind of compile time constant work. There aren't a ton of places where associated constants come up, but they're quite handy when you have a known value associated with given trait that makes more sense with the trait than with its containing module. One of the go-to examples for this are numerics, for the obvious reason that there are lots of kinds of numeric constants that we care about. So if you're designing a library for fast numeric computation, you'd presumably want a lot of those values hard-coded as constants and calculated just once, but constants on the types, not just free-floating in a module. So you might have something like a type float with a constant pi attached, written float colon colon pi, where float is the trait representing floating point numbers, and pi would be the value 3.141592626, and so on, to whatever appropriate level of precision. 
Now, to define this in the trait, you simply write a const type declaration, just as you would outside a trait, except that just like with an associated function, you only have to define the constant. You don't have to declare it with a value. So for our float example, in the body of the trait declaration, we could simply have const pi of type f32 and then a semicolon. No definition of a value there. I actually ran into a place where this was useful recently. I was experimenting with building a little tool where I needed some string types with different maximum lengths. And I could have implemented this distinctly on each and every one of those types, but it was easier, clearer, and most importantly, more fun, more interesting for experimentation's sake, to write a new trait called constrained string, which had two associated constants on it minimum length, which I spelled min underscore lane, and max length, spelled exactly as you'd expect, given how I spelled min length. Given those two constants, I could build a default implementation for creating a new instance of the type with an associated function, given those constraints. And I've put an example of this in the show notes. Just like associated functions and methods may or may not have default implementations, again, see the traits deep dive episodes, associated constants may or may not have default values. So in the case of the example from a minute ago, float with a type pi on it, you would presumably want this to have a predefined value. It would be really odd and indeed wrong for pi to have different values for different implementations. But in the case of my constrained string type, I did not want to pre-specify the constant values. The whole point of this type is that those differ for each type which implements constrained string. Instead, I just specified the types for those minimum and maximum lengths. It's an option of u size, and then I let the implementer for the trait specify their actual values. I'm alluded to this a minute ago, but I want to reiterate it. Associated consts are an example of const contexts. They are indeed a place where the compiler will perform constant evaluation, including on const function types, as I talked about in the second of my deep dive episodes on the 2018 edition. That means that any place you have these, if you have a const function which you use to define them, you can get those benefits. That gets us through the easy parts. Now let's talk about associated types. This is where things get a lot more interesting, both in the sense of increased power, but also as you would expect, with that increase in power comes an increase in complexity. In fact, associated types are one of the things that has taken me the longest to wrap my head around with Rust. That's one of the reasons it's taken me more than three years of doing the show to get to them. Also, there was just a lot of other stuff to cover, as you well know, having listened all the way through, right? Let's start with how you write an associated type. It turns out it's exactly like you would expect, given what we've already talked through. The same way you write an associated function as a function signature with or without a body, or you write a const definition with or without a value in the body of a trait definition, you write a type annotation, just like you would in a standalone context, something like type associated thing, colon. The canonical standard library example, which you've no doubt used over and over again if you used Rust at all so far, though you may not have known it, is the iterator type, which has the associated item type. And I've linked to the source of iterator in the show notes. It's very simple, actually, at least this part of it. It's just pub trait iterator with a body that includes type item and then a colon, and that's it. And then it has a ton of associated functions, of course. But There's nothing to this associated item other than that declaration and how it gets used in those various associated functions. 
Now, it's just that, I say, but it turns out that this is one of Rust's most powerful features for keeping traits from exploding into a mess of generics upon generics upon generics, and my head just exploded. If you have an iterator that is generic, you can create an impl for an enormous number of different concrete types. Let's go back to that ridiculous example I was using in the traits deep dive episodes, eatable, representing something that can be eaten. If eatable was a generic trait, we might give it the signature trait eatable generic over B has a function in it called eat, which takes self by reference and returns that generic type B. Then we could implement eatable for the generic type string for an I32. So this is an implementation of eatable for I32, which is using string as the type that eatable was generic over. If that's starting to sound complicated, that's good and right. We'll explain more of that in a second. Our definition for eat would, again, just take self by reference and return a string. And then if self were less than zero, we would return a formatted string where saying that number is gross. And if it's less than 10, we would say it's just fine. And if it's greater than 10, we would return a formatted string saying this is delicious. But we could also implement eatable generic over 64-bit floating points for i 32, and then our eat function would take self by reference and return a 64 bit floating point number, and then we'd have an implementation like f64 from self. And I mean, this is a less interesting than what we were doing with string, but it also shows us where the problem here is. For one thing, if we actually try to use this, if we write let a equals 13 and then a dot eat, we have a problem. The compiler is going to tell us multiple applicable items in scope, multiple eat found, and then it'll give us the nice suggestion. Help. To disambiguate the method call, write eatable colon colon eat, taking A as an argument, instead. But if we try that, we get another error. We need to give it type annotations because it can't infer the type for B, that generic thing. If you're curious, I named it B for breakfast because I really like eating breakfast. The only way we can actually make this error resolve is by writing eatable generic over string colon colon eat with the argument a. This is, in a word, gross. Now, gross or not, it is occasionally necessary to write things out this way. But the truth is that most of the time, we don't actually want this kind of arbitrary and unbounded genericism for our traits. Leaving aside the fact that we can't an eat an integer in the first place, I mean, I guess if you decided to make an integer-shaped birthday cake, which I would be fine with, birthday cake is good, Normally, what we actually want is a single implementation of a given trait for a given type. Eating an I32 should give us a string describing how tasty it is, not an F64 or some random struct or enum type. In other words, we want the ability to specify one other type here when we implement a trait for this specific type. An example of this from the ecosystem, which I think will be a lot more helpful than my eatable example, is Serde's visitor trait. Serta uses visitor implementations to define how to walk through a deserializer structure. It visits each of the items in the data being deserialized. And visitor has a single associated type, value. Value is the type of the thing produced by a given implementation. So you impl visitor for specific types you want to support custom deserialization for. If visitor were generic, you'd end up with no way to say, always produce a type that's actually appropriate for using this type. So for example, with a validated email, we want to be able to say, 
visiting this data structure will always produce a type that's appropriate to give us a validated email, not just some generic string. But that's what we actually want. We don't want some visit stir, which is one of the types on Saturday's visitor, to produce a different output type when Saturday is trying to deserialize into a validated email than visit string does or than visit borrowed string does. But with a generic trait rather than an associated type on a trait, that would be quite possible. What we want is to have a single implementation of visitor for this validated email idea I had, where the value produced by that visitor is always a string and with a deserialization error if it's not a valid email. This lets us do checking when we're deserializing things. And that right there is the beauty of associated types. When you implement a trait for a given type, it will only have exactly as many associated types as the trait defines. So if there are two associated types on the trait, there are two concrete types for an implementation of the trait for another type. Versus generics, where the number of generics is multiplicative. So if you had two generic types on a trait, that means every implementation for a type adds two more. It explodes, as I said earlier. Now, there are also two features in this general bucket we call associated items, which I'm not going to cover in detail today, but which do fit into this story and which you should know about. I will cover them in a news episode or perhaps a dedicated teaching episode when they're stabilized. The first of these is associated lifetimes, and these were actually defined all the way back in RFC 195 with the other kinds of associated items, but they were not yet implemented. The reference currently says that only functions, constants, and type aliases can be associated. The point here, part of the RFC, would be to provide that same kind of constrained generic programming ergonomics for lifetimes as associated types provide for regular types. And this makes sense. After all, lifetimes and types are both parts of Rust's type system, and they're closely related to each other. That's actually why they both go in the same rough places syntactically in the language. But this idea of associated lifetimes also leads us into the other thing, which I do expect to probably land sometime in 2019 or at latest 2020. And these are generic associated types. You'll sometimes see those labeled with the initialism GATs. And these come from RFC 1598, where the feature was originally called associated type constructors. So if you hear associated type constructor or GAT, those are both other names or shorthands for generic associated types. Again, I'm not going to dig deeply on this today. I will cover it in considerable detail when it does eventually stabilize, hopefully. The gist here, though, is that an important limitation of today's associated types will be lifted. They will be allowed to be generic themselves. So let's flip that around. Today, I talked through what associated types are useful for, but you can't make them generic. Now, given that I just said we want to use associated types to avoid a certain kind of problem that is an explosion of types with generics, why would we want associated types themselves to be generic? Wouldn't that defeat the point? And the answer is no. It does something slightly orthogonal to what generic traits do. And here I'll use an example from the original RFC. Let's say that you wanted to write a trait that handled both the RC and ARC reference counted types. You wanted to write a family of types. For those of you following along who have lots of type theory, yes, these are a step toward one way of expressing higher kindedness by extending Rust's existing type system. Only a part of higher kindedness, but probably enough for Rust's purposes. For those of you without the arcane type theory knowledge, don't worry about any of that. The point here is that ideally, you'd like to 
be able to have a pointer family trait, which has an associated type, pointer. And then you could fill in pointer as being arc or rc or any other thing like that. But it it can't do that today because arc and rc are arc generic over t and rc generic over t. We need to be able to say type pointer t equals arc over t in our implementations. And to do that, we would need to be able to write the associated item on the trait like type pointer generic over t bounded by being able to dereference with a target of t. And the same thing goes for lifetimes, which are their own kinds of generics, as I suggested above. Hopefully, sometime this year or early next year, the ability to do exactly that will land. And again, I'll give it an appropriate deep dive when it does. So if this brief explanation didn't totally make sense to you, don't worry about it. I'll be back with more. And that does it for associated items. Hopefully you have a bit of a better feel for associated types in particular. I know digging into them this way was very helpful for my understanding of them. Thanks, as always, to this month's $10 or more sponsors, Alexander Payne, Andrew Dirksen, Anthony Deschamps, Bjorn, Benam Esfabode, Brian McAllister, Brian Stitt, Chip, Chris Palmer, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, Daniel Mason, Embark Studios, Graham Willadall, Jacob Denar, James Hagens II, Jerome Froelich, Johan Anderson, John Rudnick, Jonathan Knapp, Joseph Marhi, Martin Huschober, Matt Rudder, Michael McDonnell, Nathan Scully, Nick Gidio, Nick Stevens, Nicholas Pochet, Olushe Shonaya, Paul Naranja, Peter Tillemans, Ramon Buckland, Rafe Levine, Rob Chuk, Ryan Osiel, and Scott Moeller. And yes, you attentive listeners did notice correctly, I didn't shuffle them this week. I did them alphabetically again. I'll probably shuffle them again next time. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash neurostation or via other services listed on the show website. There at neurostation.com, you'll also find show notes, including links to the things I talk about in the episodes, scripts, code samples, and interview transcripts. Notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash E028. Please do tell others about the show if you like it, whether that's in person, via your podcast directory, or in whatever media you happen to use online. You can contact me at Chris Kreitcher or at Neurostation on Twitter, or you can send me an email at hello at Neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Those of you who listen to my news episodes for Rust 1.31 and the 20,000, 20,000, <laughs> the 20,018 edition. Goodness. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash new station or via other services listed on the show. Can't talk today. Should never do two podcasts. Oh boy.